Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Inga Simpson. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, and acknowledge that these are unceded lands and that treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Inga Simpson's first novel, Mr. Wig, came out in 2013. Her second novel was Nest, and it was longlisted for the Miles Franklin Literary Award as well as the Stella Prize. Inga's new novel is called The Last Woman in the World, and it takes us to a place that's both familiar and shockingly different. Rachel leads a reclusive life on the land. She has an art studio where she blows exquisite glass collector's pieces, and her daily needs are delivered to her. The isolation is both a boon and a protection from the world that has become overwhelming. Rachel has cut herself off from the daily news cycle of fire, flood and disease. It's an unchanging litany of destruction that she cannot bear. And while the world seems hell-bent on destruction, she just doesn't expect anything's going to change. Rachel is content in her isolation until one night a young mother and her child come knocking. They shouldn't be there. Their mere presence shatters Rachel's peace. But when Hannah reveals that they're on the run, that it is all gone, Rachel realises that somehow the world has self-destructed. Join me as we discover Inga Simpson's The Last Woman in the World. It's my pleasure this morning to be welcoming Inga Simpson. Welcome. This is going to be such an exciting chat, I feel. Hey, Andrew. Yeah, really great to talk with you. Now, I want to introduce... I want to introduce in very sparing ways the last woman in the world. Rachel leads a reclusive life on the land. She has her art and her daily needs are delivered to her. The isolation is a boon and a protection from a world that has become too overwhelming. Rachel has cut herself off from the daily news cycle of fire, flood and disease, an unchanging litany of destruction that she seemingly cannot affect. And Rachel's content in her isolation until a young mother and her child shatter this piece with news that it's all gone. The world has seemingly self-destructed. I mean, I'm not giving anything away here. This is like, <laughs> this is the, I mean, you, could, you can almost infer a lot of this from the very opening pages. Rachel's retreat, though, it may seem very familiar to all of us who have experienced lockdown recently, which is, you know, a huge po- portion of the Australian population, if not the world. But rather than doom scrolling social media, Rachel has actively cut herself off and it's a kind of protection for her severe anxiety. And I thought perhaps we might start with Rachel and the small world that she's created and also the ways that the last woman in the world responds to our current world. Yeah, and the first thing to say about that is probably that I um, had finished the first draft before the fires of Black Summer. Well, before COVID, you know, and but then through the editing process and then there's a delay in publication because of COVID that um, I felt the need to, yeah, make little tweaks to make sure that the novel is just ahead of the present. But, yeah, it felt like the present kept catching up <laughs> to the book. Um, 
you know, in my life, for a lot of people through through lockdown, that, that sense of retreating from the world, um, although we all still had connectivity, uh, was probably new. But, you know, for me, that's um, to an extent, you know, how I live my life. So drawing on that conflict, you know, wanting to then to withdraw from the world but then not really being able to, you know, it's not actually possible or perhaps desirable. That is absolutely fascinating. And I know that when COVID first landed, we had so many experts coming out and saying, by the way, we have been mentioning pandemics for our your entire life. But how did you feel when you saw the, like, as you've just described, the world, you needed to stay one step ahead of the world. The world was seemingly trying to catch up to this incredible narrative that you were crafting. Well, you start to worry about what, the powers of your writing, you know, you've got to be careful what you imagine and put down the page. You know, it seemed to be coming true. Um, so, yeah, that was strange and, um, you know, kept changing the story. But I, I think in the end, yeah, solving those problems and, um, you know, I had an extra kind of year to tinker with the book, uh, to edit it. You know, I feel like it's a... Uh, a richer story as a result. There are more layers to it than there might have mm. been, you know, had those things not all occurred. Um, and then thinking, you know, seeing firsthand, because the book's partly about fear, you know, individual and societal. Um, Rachel has all this anxiety. You know, I think as a society we have a lot of anxiety and this is can be fed by social media, you know, and, and spread. And so... I guess I saw that firsthand with COVID, you know. I mean, initially we didn't know where it was going to go. You're just seeing all these bad news stories from all around the world and all this sort of scary information. So, um, and the same with the fires, that kind of raw fear, seeing uh, how quickly society breaks down. I mean, this was great experience for mm. a writer in a way. Um, you know, I hadn't experienced those things prior to the fire. I wouldn't have imagined that the world as I knew it could deconstruct in three days, you know, that you wouldn't be able to get fuel, money, toilet paper, milk, you know. Um, is this, is, that quick? Is, a, is a story like this a double-edged sword for you as a creator? I mean, I feel like for it's, for the better part of 18 months, I've been having conversations with, with writers, with artists about how do we begin to respond to this situation? Like we've, you know, we can't use all of the words anymore because they've just been overused. You know, if, if we hear unprecedented one more time, you know, we're, we're, we're going to, our heads are going to explode. But here you have a book that was seemingly responding before it even happened. Like, do you, do you worry about where a book like this lands? Do you, how do you feel about your book when the world starts catching up to it? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of anxiety, you know, if I missed my moment, you know, it's already happened. And, um, Certainly with my own reading, you know, I preferred escapism. Um, yeah, I mean, I wrote it expecting it to be released at a particular time and that kept moving and then events kept shifting. So, yeah, I had a lot of anxiety, mm. you know. Is it, uh, it going to land the way I wanted it to? You know, how are people going to respond? Um, is it too late for this book? <laughs> I'm really interested in, in the ways The Last Woman in the World maybe shows us and holds a mirror up to our world because... As you mentioned, you know, we've, we've had this isolation, but then also this connectivity. Um, you know, I've seen less people in the flesh, you know, now more than ever in my life. And yet I seem, you know, seemingly can be closer to people. Like 
I know many people's gorgeous bookshelves from their Zoom. You've got an amazing bookshelf <laughs> behind you, which I would never have learnt from you in, in a pre-COVID time. And one feature of The Last Woman in the World is how simultaneously large and small the world feels. Rachel, um, your protagonist, Hannah and Isaiah, they're initially bounded by where they can easily walk. And yet they soon come to have this really intimate familiarity with the entire world of supply chains and production, which they're now cut <laughs> off from. They're now, they're now limited to just what they have around them, what they can you know, forage, scrounge, grow. Now, we're currently also living through a supposed supply chain crisis. Do you feel <laughs> like we really appreciate, though, what we have in our world in the way that perhaps Hannah and Rachel come to? Yeah, I think most people probably don't. Um, you know, as I mentioned, until the fires, I just took everything for granted. And despite months of warnings for the, you know, that the fires were coming, I was caught without cash. I was caught without fuel in my car. I was caught without even having charged my laptop. You know, it was flat when the power went out. It was weeks till we had proper power again. Um, losing your phone, phone connectivity. <laughs> life without that seemed, well, I hadn't been able to imagine it. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to draw on some of that with those two. One, Hannah and Rachel would never have probably spent any time together in mm. life before uh, the catastrophe that has uh, occurred in The Last Woman in the World. And so they're already challenged there, you know, having to rely on each other when Rachel wouldn't have chosen to rely on any other humans, you know, other than her sister. But, yeah, that reduction of everything down to the most simple things, you know, staying safe, staying healthy, um, procuring food and water, you know, and, and making sure your loved ones are okay or trying to find out if they are. I mean, you know, these are the, the basic survival. Survival is, becomes number one, um, which is hard for most of us to imagine, you know, mm. in our everyday lives. You've mentioned there the catastrophe, and I want to ask, I want to maybe ask a few little kind of teaser questions that don't give too much away, but maybe, um, maybe just dangle a little bit of bait. And one thing, again, coming back to those supply chains that really jumped out at me is at one point Rachel is thinking to herself, you know, fresh milk, the, that's gone because who is there to bring the cows in? Um, who is there to milk them and et cetera, et cetera. And there is another scene where they uh, encounter a farm and they let the horses out because these horses are essentially now now bounded in the paddock that they had previously been their home. The catastrophe seemingly passes over animals. You don't have to say too much. You don't have to spoil anything. But was that a conscious choice um, to, to show us that? Yeah, I, I saw it as a result of a human weakness, a very human weakness, and perhaps the animals that are closest to us. But, yeah, that this is a weakness in our own minds, that we're, you know, we like to think we're top of the food chain and uh, that we're not animals, uh, that we're exceptional, and, and we are exceptional, but perhaps some of the ways that we're exceptional are a weakness. Mm. So what I loved in the novel is that it isn't immediately apparent that this is horror, and yet undoubtedly we're facing a nightmare bound only by our imagination. So first of all, I want to ask, is that a fair genre characterization? And what did you want to explore about fear? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm a realist at heart, so I probably 
you know, it was a stretch for me to go to horror, um, but I wanted it to be grounded in place. Um, I didn't want it to be fantastical or science fiction. I wanted it to be really about the human condition. And, you know, there's characters in the landscape, you know, the way most of my writing is. So, um, yeah, what is it I want to say about fear? That it can be overcome, I think. We can overcome our fears. And um, to show the way that our fears limit our lives, I think, that we are as a species, as individuals, as communities, probably limited by our imagination, lack of imagination and our, our fears of what might happen. You know, I mean, Rachel doesn't know what she's capable of or she's forgotten what she's capable of. And then by being pushed into adversity, she finds that she's capable of more than she's expected of us, come to expect of herself. So, you know, exploring that too, again, through my experience of the fire, seeing the absolute best of people, uh, the worst of people too, but seeing so many people lift in this state of emergency to be their best possible selves, you know, um, brave, heroic, generous, kind, open, you know, mm. yeah, the opposite of how we've we've come to live in a way. I really want to keep going with imagination and creativity because it was it was interesting to me there that you said um, that we can in fact be limited by our lack of imagination because at a very early point in the novel, Hannah in fact introduces the idea that they are out there, they are coming. And Rachel and Hannah are constantly vigilant of a never-seen them. Can, can you talk a little bit about the contrast of this fear where imagination actually seems to be a bit of an enemy to, to Hannah and Rachel and the anxiety that Rachel has been living with her entire life? I guess what I was interested in with, with that is, um, again, how we can be limited by our own fears um, <laughs> I really can't, it's hard not to give too much away with that one because, I mean, it is sort of like um, almost like our worst worst case scenario, our worst fears. Uh, that, that's kind of our vulnerability. But is that giving too much away? <laughs> I, I, I think um, the fine line between spoiling and just infuriatingly teasing is, is <laughs> one that you are uh, you're skirting beautifully at the okay. moment. Okay. Let's let's move on because I also it, it feels almost a little bit cliched to riff on the idea of we were the monsters all along theme, but <laughs> undoubtedly we saw in the early days of the COVID pandemic that people could very quickly turn on each other over something as benign as toilet paper, and and Rachel throughout she constantly questions herself her desire for solitude versus what she may see as a failure to act or a failure to act in time and be part of the world. So what I, what I was curious about there is, do you feel like there really are monsters um, in whatever form they may take? Or is it a sense that there is a fear, a fear of something outside us that does real damage in, in the way we behave? Yeah, both, I think. I don't mean, think there are monsters among us, um, some of them leading countries. Um, which was, you know, through the Trump era, era was uh, pretty frightening and how social media was manipulating people's ideas and, and actions through that time. I mean, that was kind of one snapshot of um, the worst, worst side of human nature. 
I know during the fires, you know, whilst most, you know, 95% of people were heroic and wonderful and their best selves, you know, there were 5% that were out looting houses, you know, that had been evacuated or partly burned. So, yeah, I guess I was unpacking some of that for myself and my own my own conflict about, um, you know, whether to hide away from it all or whether I should be, you know, out there trying to make a difference in a more active way than I do. It's really interesting in the book, though, you, you play with moments of doubt but also clarity. And, I mean, Hannah is particularly interesting in that sense. And, again, from a very early point we understand that Isaiah, her, her baby, her child, her baby, is very sick and that becomes very clarifying for her because she needs to save him. She doesn't understand anything other than if she has to keep him alive. And there are times where that may, may seem to justify things that she, she wouldn't do that Rachel might not do um, in, in different circumstances. Uh, uh, that clarifying sense also seems to be very driving, but it can be a problem. It can bring up a sort of a moral doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Hannah becomes very one-minded, single-minded on saving Isaiah. You know, Rachel's agenda is different. She wants to find her sister, though she comes to care about Hannah and Isaiah as well. Yeah, I mean, that ruthlessness that's required to survive is very interesting to me. I kind of love the genre of survivalist, you know, films, miniseries, books. Um, it's the flip side of what we're capable of, I guess. You know, what will we do to survive? I mean, by the end of the book, they both have to do things they are uncomfortable with. Um, you know, and I've, I've experienced that too, you know, um, being reckless or ruthless um, to survive in difficult circumstances, to protect the people that you love. Uh, again, it's a human nature. We, we think we're so civilised and, and refined, uh, but... Yeah, the animal behaviour, this survivalist behaviour is only just under the surface. <laughs> and it is, thinking of that survivalism, uh, it's tremendous the journey you take us on through the book um, and the complications that you throw up, even even something as simple as Rachel just doesn't drive, she doesn't have a car, so they have to hike the high country from Rachel's home, her isolation, to the small town where she grew up. Um, I mean, this is this is way off what we've been talking about in terms of human nature, but to evoke that, was that a trek that you had done yourself? Was Because it's incredible country. It is incredible country. Um, yeah, I'm a big walker myself, um, and I've set it quite close to where I live on the Jua River. Um, yeah, and it's quite a difficult walk up to the high country. Um I walked or drove most of the journey that they take uh, in Last Woman before writing. You know, that's my level of research. I need to have seen the country for myself to be able to, decide, to describe it effectively. Um, and I, But I did it just before the fire. So having walked it and driven it, then I saw it all go up in smoke, mm. you know. Um, so that made it even more poignant, I guess, thinking that that landscape those landscapes had been changed, altered, damaged, um, you know, some of them irreparably. But I was also inspired by John Blay's book about the Bundian Way, so the traditional pathways up from the south coast up to the high country um, where you and peoples would travel up seasonally to seek food 
um, in the summer months and, and cooler weather. So the Bunyan Way is further south, but there were many of these traditional pathways, most of which can still be found. I mean, you can still follow them. Mm. Um, so, yeah, trying to find those is another another story for me, but um, that was just another layer of the story for me to um, think about our first peoples and mm. the way they cared for country and travelled over country so much more lightly than we do. So, um, And Rachel has had some teaching from a local elder. So, yeah, just another thread, um, a juxtaposition perhaps of how the state of the world in the novel, um, which I saw as a result of human action. Yeah. yeah. Just as a just as a wee tangent on the, the narrative discussion, our conversation comes hot on the heels of a conversation I had with Anthony Sharwood, whose latest book is The Brumby Wars, which kind of looks at, I mean, he, he subtitled it um, the, the Battle for the Soul of Australia around this idea of, of the introduced horses and that sort of, the, the gentle touch that is required in this, um, you know, incredible ecosystem. Um, and so to, to travel those, to travel those pathways in your book and the extraordinary narrative that you set up, having sort of walked again, just metaphorically walked those pathways with Anthony as he, as he meets with people who um, are trying to protect the high country was, was a really interesting. It's, I, I think, one thing that we have maybe had highlighted for us in these days is while population centres are, you know, in these big cities, a huge proportion of Australia's population and the, the subject of, of everything, of lockdowns, etc., are in these big cities, that Australia is a huge land and that, you know, apart from the occasional weekend, we're not paying that much attention to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, my experience of lockdown well, was a very lucky one, firstly, but um, completely different. Um, still plenty of open space and quiet and privacy and nature around me. So, yeah, for me, nature is not something I go out to for a weekend mm. or the wilderness. You know, maybe I'll go somewhere much more wild for a weekend or a walk or a week. Um, but, yeah, I live my life pretty close to nature every day. So, I mean, it's part of what I'm trying to share with my writing with people who don't, who aren't fortunate enough to be able to do that or choose not to do that. Um, I think through lockdown, that's probably the biggest thing I've noticed that people started to value nature more. You know, um, their hour of recreation outside a day or, you know, being able to get up on the mountain or into a park or to a beach. And judging by the state of campsites around the place, you know, prettier, people are very, very keen to to get it back out there, having been deprived of the option, perhaps it's more attractive. Mm. Um, and I think there was a sense of safety in, in the natural world through COVID, mm. that we weren't safe around people. We weren't safe in confined spaces with a lot of people. So open space, which, as you say, Australia has plenty of, um, perhaps we'll value it a little more mm. into the future. Another thread that I'd like to pull um, of the novel is art and its role. And we've talked about, we've talked about themes of, I mean, it's a very much a sort of a post-apocalyptic type novel. Uh, we've talked about horror. So it may seem, it may seem strange perhaps to some listeners that I want to now talk about art, but art and its role in Rachel's life is a focal point, particularly as her world becomes less and less secure. 
She is thinking constantly about her art. She's thinking about her mother's work, um, her sister's. Rachel's medium is glass, and glass is at times fragile but also hard. It can be difficult to work with, and it can produce extraordinary colours and designs. Can I ask you why glass? <laughs> I've always been fascinated with glass blowing. Um, I just think it's a beautiful form, you know, kind of magical. Uh, I wanted Rachel to be an artist, you know, to have some focus for her seclusion. Um, writing is too obvious and too boring for me. And, I, you know, she's a, a bigger, big, strong woman too, so I wanted the, it to be a, an art form that was quite physical, you know, almost industrial in style, quite challenging. Um, so, yeah, I came up with, with the glass. Um, this was before fires featured in the story, right? So it turned out to be a great kind of metaphor, her using fire, you know, to produce her art, but then fire becomes something to be fearful of, you know, that contrast of fire being her friend and the hot shop, mm. but, you know, on the loose in the landscape, it, it's a threat. And then, the, you know, I hadn't thought it through consciously, but there's a lovely metaphor there, as you say, for the, the um, contrasting sort of strength with glass in its molten form, you know, you can do anything with it almost if you have the skills, but then once it's on the shelf, you know, it's easily shattered, easily broken. So that began to feel like a pretty good metaphor for Rachel, you know, her her strengths versus her weaknesses. Um, that gave me a lot to play with, you know, and the metaphor of fire. And, um, I did a workshop, a weekend workshop in glass making and found out just how hard it is, you know, really hard work, quite stressful. Um, it's not in my skill set, sadly. But, yeah, that gave me the language to describe the process and, you know, it's a process that requires being methodical, repeating the same moves. I mean, Rachel probably can't help this, but she counts her steps, you know, between the different stations in the hot shop. You know, it's, it's that um, level of exactitude mm. with something that seems freeform, but, you know, it isn't and isn't. <laughs> I think another thing that's extraordinary about it, her, both her her work but also what her mind turns to, the way her mind turns to her work, her mother's painting throughout the novel is we are never challenged and hopefully we are never challenged to think about how our minds would turn come an apocalypse. But I don't know that many of us would say, well, I'm probably going to ruminate more on art. You know, we through narrative, <laughs> through video gaming, through all of the ways that show us this post-apocalyptic world, we, we get this idea that you're going to be thinking about survival and where your next meal is coming from. But you also show us that retaining that sense of the beautiful and the way we understand the world is incredibly important. Was that something that emerged naturally in the text or was that something that you really wanted to make sure was in there? I think it's probably pretty unconscious. Um, it's, you know, for creatives, that is the centre of their life that, um, and probably a compulsion, you know. Um, I was just talking to someone recently about my father who was a farmer, but he also made incredible um, artworks. He's turned wooden bowls, blacksmithing, built stone houses, you know. I don't think he could turn it off. You know, it was just he finished one house and build a workshop and then build another house. And these are massive undertakings, you know, eight, ten years. Um, so I think for a creative 
person, no matter the circumstances, you you probably can't turn that off. During the fires, um, you know, my life was very disrupted for a number of months and, you know, I had a book to write too, so I had no choice but to create. But, yeah, even though you're in this survival mode, like reduced to procuring food, cash, fuel, you know, um, finding ways to communicate with loved ones, um, helping people who need help, still I would make time to read, um, to pay attention Oh, look, these beautiful birds don't normally come here. Um, they're here because all their forest has been burned. But it's still beautiful to observe those birds and see that they're alive and okay. So I guess that's part of my own survival process, mm. you know, still nurturing that wonder for what beauty there is around, um, trying to find a reason to go on, a, a purpose to each day. Um, you know, what are we if we, as humans, if we lose that sense of purpose and wonder and positivity, you know, it, it gets black pretty quickly. I love this idea that it's foundational, that it's innate, that it it's inseparable from us. And I think we have done enough to establish the incredible journey. Um, the We've teased enough of the narrative to hook people. So now following on this theme of the role of art in the novel and at the risk of heavy spoilers, and I can completely cut this if I need to, a big question hanging over the narrative is how and why Hannah, Isaiah, and Rachel are survivors. What protects them? Now, there's a suggestion that Hannah has Isaiah and that their bond protects her, but what about Rachel? So I had this idea. I had this idea, and I know there are other ideas in the novel, but I want, I want to address this one. I had this idea that it is her creative impulse, that there is something about Rachel's artistic endeavour and her creative perspective that are protective factors against, call it, call it fear, call it them. Um, am I way off here? No, I think that's pretty close to, um, to my idea. I think for me it was her relationship with the natural world mm. um, that was a stronger bind than the, the connection with the human world. You know, So both her choice of physical isolation from all those uh, inputs from the human world, but her kind of imaginative or spiritual connection with nature has kept her more grounded. Um, and throughout the novel, just her, her perception, her level of perception for both them and the natural world. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe I hadn't thought of it so explicitly, but yeah, that creative drive gives her enough purpose to keep her moving forward, you know. Um, and maybe love for her sister, you know, wanting to find out, you know, this is the most important person in her life, um, that bond with her. She's thinking about her sister all the time. You know, that keeps her going. I think. Look, we're, we're, we're definitely in spoiler territory here. So people that have listened this far on the podcast, especially where, where um, we might have to relegate this part of the interview, are warned if you haven't read, maybe stop now. But I just wanted to ask that one, one further follow-up question. In, in the sort of realm of the psychological um, and, and also horror, we tend to have a tension between the scene and the graphic um, danger and the, the internal, the perceived, the psychological danger. What was the attraction of working with something that is more 
perceived. And 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 you never see I guess you never see the face of of the beast, not to be confused with Rachel's car. <laughs> yeah, I love Rachel's car. Um Yeah, I think for every yeah. The perceived was more fun mm. to work with. Um you know, I, I like reading and watching this genre, but often it's a disappointment when the threat it's is It's never satisfactory, is it? Yeah, it's like, no, that's not what I was imagining. So um, I got to play with that here where for each, you know, for Hannah and Rachel, you know, it's very, it's different. Um, their perception of the threat is different, which helped me unpack their, their backstories and their characters too. For me, what is imagined is always much more frightening than what is shown. And this way there's room for the reader. You know, it's what's in the read, what's the reader's worst fear. You know, that, that hopefully um, is powerful uh, in the reading experience as well. I could not agree more. I, it is the, the, the denouement of some horrific beast is never satisfactory. And I think the only, you don't have to look much further than there's usually um, a nature journal or magazine that says these 10 insects magnified 100 times are the most horrific thing you've ever seen. And you suddenly realize that, you know, horror, horror creators are often riffing on um, things in the natural world, which I, I, I don't think we have any right to be fearful of insofar as they should probably be fearful of, of us. But I, yeah, I love. Thank you for thank you for um, indulging me that question because it it is we like to be scared, don't we? And it's it's always fun to examine what might scare us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what people do under that pressure of mm. of fear, you know, seeing what happens to human behaviour when yeah faced with a threat, mm. and you know, over and over, it's not just once they have to keep facing it, and it seems to be gathering power whilst but they're also learning more mm. uh, and, and start to work together uh, to overcome that threat. That's it for this great conversation with Inga Simpson. Inga's new novel is The Last Woman in the World. It's out now from Hachette. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You can find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You just search for the handle at Final Draft 2SER. Drop us a line. Love to know what you're reading, what you're enjoying. Have you discovered anything through Final Draft? And what do you think we should be covering? What books have got your attention? Subscribe in your podcast app. It means there's a new great conversation every week. There's also bonuses that pop up through the week. You never have to be too far away from new Australian literary content. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.